Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Nehra. All right. Today's presentation is titled "Science versus Political Politicized Academics" by Shrikant Telagiri ji. Uh, Shrikant sir, thanks for coming once again. Yeah. All right, sir. So, sir, do I start sharing the the slides? Can we go directly to it? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Unless you have some preliminary remarks or something. No, no, no. So we'll go get straight into the slides, sir. So I'll okay. I'll share the slides. Just give me a second. <clears throat> okay. Let me check it. All right. It seems. All right. So I will go to the first slide now. Yeah. All right, sir. All yours. Yeah. I felt the need for this talk because you know people generally uh, instead of actually uh, studying the subject or uh, discussing the subject they tend to dis uh, discuss me like uh, I'm a bank employee or I'm not uh, this thing I'm not a qualified scientist or a professor and uh, I cannot uh, have no right to speak on subjects where other uh, scientists are expressing their contrary opinions so and this has become so much you know people have got used to this kind of an attitude where they respect the status rather than the actual subject matter now uh, as i have, uh, as people will i suppose be reading the slide as i speak now in all periods there have always has always been an entrenched class of highly biased and politicized experts and academics who control the levers of academic power the contours of official beliefs and the dissemination of public information and they always manage to suppress those who have expressed other views now in ancient india there was always a spirit of healthy debate as we read and there were different schools of thought if you read for example the sarva darshana sangra of madhavacharya you'll see how many different right from charvaka to the extremely uh, you know bhakti cult or the different bhakti cults or to you know uh, vedanta and um, it's different forms like dwaita and advaita and all that. every kind of religious thought or philosophical thought i should say existentialist thought was uh, studied or and uh, uh, different schools of thought express different uh, opinions on everything and uh, all of them were free to express them at the same time there used to be debate between different uh, schools of thought we know the famous debate between shankaracharya and uh, uh, other uh, uh, those uh, supporters of the what is a purva mimamsa school etc now in most of these debates you know there were set rules that if you could not answer the logical uh, arguments of the opponent you people used to accept defeat but maybe human beings were being what they are maybe they never always accepted defeat but nevertheless that was the trend or the official or approved trend in india maybe not everywhere in the world but in modern times now india has become exactly like the rest of the world and uh, status and financial academic or media power overrule facts and evidence data is totally irrelevant no one discusses data they would for example discuss whether how many languages i know properly what is my academic status what is my profession uh, what are my political views what words i use i think the classical example of this i can give is you know uh, there is one arnold fornet he wrote a review mm -hmm. of my third book the rigveda and the avesta and what happened was actually after my book was published 
I told Conrad, can you get this book reviewed by uh, Western academics? So he said, I know someone who is open-minded. I don't know why he thought it he was, but he uh, because he supports or he has all kinds of unorthodox views. So Conrad has interpreted that to mean that uh, he was open-minded. So he sent him a copy of my book. And within four days, this man had written a long review and also put it up on his this thing uh, on his site or on the internet. And uh, it was so abusive and so petty. And he didn't know anything about any of the subjects which I had dealt with. And yet he will spend all his time criticizing, you know, my, my use of punctuation marks, my use of capital letters and italics and uh, underlined words. And uh, uh, my the way I arrange the books, my bibliography, all kinds of irrelevant things. Even the color and the smell of my book, apparently published by Aditya Prakashan. So I was so disgusted by that. I thought this is the ultimate in cheapness. So I didn't reply to it. This was in 2008 or 9 after my book was published. After one year, someone sent me a, this thing saying, see, this man, Arnold Fornet, he's going around on the internet, crowing that he wrote a review of your book and no one has dared to reply to it. So that really got my goat and I sat down and wrote a full reply to it. It was an abusive reply in the same manner in which he had written the review of my book. And this reply of mine is there on my blog spot. Um, uh, a reply to an, uh, a joker's review of my book. And in that I showed all the ridiculous rubbish that he has written in his review. So you see there, that is the kind of thing, punctuation, what bibliography I have used, what is my status? These are the things. No one is concerned with the data, the facts, the evidence that I have presented. And uh, uh, now, uh, to, and uh, the academic power is so much that in the academic discussions as well as in media uh, discussions and uh, media articles, you find there is a complete control of uh, the information by these people. It's so complete that uh, I don't know how many of you have read... Uh, George Orwell's books, Animal Farm and uh, 1984. Now, Animal yeah. Farm is a super classic in my book, in my opinion. And uh, 1984 is rather a tedious book. Nevertheless, in 1984, it depicts a world of the future where the government so completely controls everything that uh, no one, everyone has TV cameras in, installed in their house by which the government observes every action of theirs and then punishes them if they do something which the government does not like. Now, one feature of that is that the hero of the book is working in the Ministry of Truth. There is a Ministry of Truth. And there, uh, the purpose of this ministry is to correct information and completely correct and control information to the extent that every day he receives memos from the uh, whoever is in charge. And uh, the memos, you know, tell him four years ago, the newspaper said that uh, uh, it was reported, the government uh, reported that so many tons of wheat would be grown. But now you, you have to go back into the uh, that old record and change the figure. So what, what it means is that what the paper actually said four years ago will never be known to the future generations because it is so completely altered that every time you can change not only present records, even the past records. So there is so much absolute control over the mind. 
that no, there is absolutely no free thought. Now, it sounds you know ridiculous if you read that book. The uh, it's so it's frightening as well as you know unreal. You feel how can it be? There be so much control. But believe it or not, actual the actual uh, way in which the academia and the media function is somewhat like that. And I am giving two very prominent examples of this. One is uh, where they not only change their views, not only completely push forward a wrong view everywhere so that it is the only view which is prevalent everywhere, but they also change the records of all past consensus on any issue to cover up every fraudulent U-turn taken by them so as to make it appear that their new stand was always their old stand. So two examples are the original Hindu identity of the Babri Masjid site and the identity of the Rigvedic Saraswati river with the present Ghaggar Hakra river complex. Now, all these falsehoods you know, leaves their fans, you know, leaves these writers, these scholars, these media people and all their countless fans totally unfazed. They just grab the latest uh, party opposition or whatever you can call it and they keep uh, parroting it. So now the Babri Masjid case is a case in point. Till 1947, every single historical record and reference to the site whether by Muslim, Hindu or Western writers, unanimously acknowledged that it was a case of a masjid structure occupying the site of a destroyed Hindu temple. Even the Muslims refer to the structures on the site with names like Janmasthan Masjid and Sita Ki Rosavi Masjid. Now they can't be referring to the Janmasthan of some Islamic person or there's no Sita uh, who is uh, Muslim Sita who is supposed to have stayed in that site. So they boldly asserted that it was built on the Ram Janmabhumi site even by the names that they gave to those structures. But it only became Babri when the dispute hotted up post-1947, the court case and the reoccupation of the temple by Hindus by keeping an idol in it. Now, immediately, the Indian as well as international academia and media completely changed their stand. Suddenly, they all came up with different conflicting reports. You should see Conrad Els has written, written a book on that about how 10, 15 different stands contradicting each other and all of them were presented by the Babri Masjid committee to the uh, government. However, the Hindus presented one consolidated case which was prepared actually by Conrad himself and uh, presented to the Hindu uh, uh, Vishwa Hindu Parishad and the Ram Janmabhumi Nyas who presented it to the government, Chandrasekhar government who had asked for a debate on the subject. Now, what happened is that suddenly all over the world it became a case of intolerant Hindus trying to destroy a minority place of worship. And, you know, lakhs of temples have been destroyed. And it is not, not only Hindus who have maintained this tradi uh, traditional memory. It is the Islamic writers who boldly and proudly described how many temples they destroyed. They kept a record of it and how those idols were taken. And they were sent to Islamic countries where they were broken and put into the steps of mosques. So that the people going to pray could step on those idols and go. Everything is a complete open book. It's a record of more than a thousand years. Recorded history of more than a thousand years. And suddenly it became a complete non-issue or even a big lie. No, no, Muslims have not done anything. In our present time, we saw what was done to the Bamiyan Buddhas in Afghanistan. And what was done by the ISIS in Syria and Iraq where they destroyed very ancient Babylonian cities and uh, monuments. So 
that is the way this complete lie was has been propagated and this one while all those lakhs of cases are completely denied this recovery by hindus of one temple site back from the uh, mosque structure that was occupying it it has become like as if you know uh, the dropping of a bomb on hiroshima or nagasaki a big crime in fact it has become the biggest religious crime in the world muslims for years and years i don't know if they still do it on that day they uh, uh, certain uh, muslim groups they do matam then all over the world everyone whenever they talk about atrocities on muslims in india they mention how muslims were heartbroken when the babri masjid was destroyed that is the extent to which lies can be propagated by the academia and media it is not only media leftist media remember all the academics also join hands in those falsehoods then we have the case of the saraswati and the ghagga rakra now the rigveda is composed on mainly on the banks of the saraswati river and all the scholars ever since the first day indological and rigvedic study started every single eminent indologist geologist and archaeologist have identified the rigvedic saraswati with the ghagar hakra of haryana which moves through rajasthan into sindh and into the sea it is called ghagar in india and hakra in pakistan now here is a representative list of all the scholars you will see it includes everyone from max miller monier william pichel geldner hopkins everyone you can go through the list and some more you know said the saraswati or the ghagarakra is quite a dry river so how can it be the saraswati but uh, so they tried to find alternatives maybe it is the indus it is another name for the indus and a few uh, but even those people agreed that in many of the cases the references were undoubtedly to the ghagarakra itself even witzel repeatedly tells us in his article in 1995 i have quoted him saraswati equals to sarsuti ghagar hakra in my books i have given more detailed quotations very emphatically says that it is saraswati is the ghagar hakra and he even tells us that because the ghagar hakra dried up after 1005 was completely dry after 1500 bc more or less that means that the hymns of the rigveda which refer to it must have been earlier he has said this in his book and i have quoted it and now all of them there were a few scholars like brunofer hertel and hissing who located the whole text including the ganga yamuna the chital the elephant and uh, the peacock everything in afghanistan without any logic so this was rejected by all the other indologists so there although there were one or two or three of such scholars they were not taken seriously even by the other scholars now in the late 80s and early 90s they discovered firstly that the highest concentration of harappan sites was in the saraswati river basin that is the ghaggar hakra river basin and that the river started drying up after 1900 bc so this means that the rigveda which refers the hymns which refer to the saraswati in the rigveda to the ghaggar hakra they go back long before 1900 bc and also they are the harappan sites they are harappan sites in that area and that was when the river was flowing in full and when they realized that this showed the rigveda to be older than 2000 bc certain scholars like romila thapar irfan habib and rs sharma executed a complete u-turn on the subject and they declared that the rigvedic saraswati was not ghagar hakra but the helmand river of afghanistan now here 
Since then, the entire Indian and international bandwagon of fraudulent academic scholars has been brazenly propagating this new identity as if it is the only one. All of them act as if, and they act indignant that Indian or Hindu scholars whom they brand with various labels, that these Hindu or Indian scholars are claiming it is a Ghaggarakra. Actually, it is a Helmand. But that is what all the scholars were saying till, say, 20, 30 years ago. Now, the most brazen aspect of this whole thing is that it propagates that the identification of the Rigvedic Saraswati with the Ghaggarakra is a new identification made by Hindu writers in contradiction to an original consensus that it was the Afghan Halmand River. Now, this is see, nothing, you know, we are not talking about uh, things which are not recorded, like they make up stories of Aryans based not based on records but this is we have the records of scholars from the last 200 years all their books are available and anyone can pick up the books and see whom which which river did they identify the rigvedic saraswati with the gagarakra and now it is claimed by these few scholars by the entire gang of scholars so to say that this identification is a new one concocted by hindu opponents of the ait Means this is exactly like the situation envisaged by George Orwell in 1984, where you can go back into the past. You can say that Max Miller had also identified it with the Helmand, and all that whole list of scholars had also identified it with the Helmand. Actually, if you go and read the records, you'll see whom they had, which river they had identified it with. Now, it is this lie which is being propagated now by the entire spectrum of academia and media and their legions of foot soldiers. The new Goebbels, we have to call him that because Goebbels is the standard for falsification in general uh, rhetoric. Now, Tony Joseph, for example, calls this the argument of the migrational migration denialists, which is how he calls the Hindu side or the OIT side. Now, OIT side does not deny migration. We say there was a migration, but it was from India. So we are not really migration denialists, but this is how he puts it. So in Indian studies, whether it is done by Indian scholars or Western scholars, it is almost always the all-powerful academia and media versus the truth and versus the facts, data and evidence. They say something and you cannot disprove them because they refuse to acknowledge it. Now, the same thing in the AIT versus OIT debate on the whole, apart from the Saraswati. You know, pseudo-intellectual debaters, you see them on Twitter, Facebook, in articles, they claim that the debate is between scientists on the AIT side and amateur writers on the OIT side. You know, bank employees like me and various other uh, riffraff who have just decided we'll write something about this and we are writing. But those scientists, all the academicians, they are the right, uh, they are in the right and we are in the wrong because we, we are not scientists, we are not professors. In actuality, it is between science on the OIT side and dogma, academic authority, and herd mentality on the AIT side. And what are the sciences we are talking about? See, there is the science of carbon dating. And that has always seemed to be have been the uh, Achilles heel of Indian history because the earliest carbon dated and readable inscriptions were on the Ashoka pillars, just 300 BC or so. But now, we have carbon dating of the Mitanni uh, inscriptions and uh, documents in West Asia and Egypt. 
and another is the science of philology and textual exegesis that is analysis on its side for more than 200 years western indologists linguists and scholars have analyzed the rigveda and both these sciences are on the side of the oit whereas the ait side has now acknowledged defeat on all these fronts and they only rely on false and fraudulent claims of genetics on its side now another science claimed by both sides but all the evidence is fully on the oit side as i have shown in my books is linguistics and archaeology archaeology is another science which definitely rejects the ait while providing data which can be accommodated in the oit i have shown all this in my books but those are as i said not a subject of this talk now what is this philological division of the rigveda that i'm talking about now rigveda is one text we know it but it is divided into 10 books or mandalas now these books are not arbitrary divisions you know there are two divisions of the rigveda one is the mandala division and another is the ashtaka division now the ashtaka division is a very artificial one it just divides the rigveda into four part eight parts and eight ashtakas however the uh, mandala division is based on many many different factors it is based on the history of the rigveda now what is the consensus what has been the consensus on the side of the western scholars since more than 200 years see as uh, i am quoting witzel he quotes bergen and oldenburg who even in the 19th century they had pointed out that the rigveda was composed and assembled in different stages beginning at the center with books 2 to 7 so yeah, and proferis is a present day scholar who is witzel's favorite pupil because witzel quotes him many times now proferis has also said first the clan books 2 to 7 were collected and ordered and the rigveda was formed in carried out in three stages that is how he puts it there were many stages so all the whole of academics this thing is united in saying that the six family books 2 to 7 are older than the four non family books 1 and 8 to 10 this is the first fact that is established by the philological division of the rigveda next now but within the family books 2 to 7 there is one book book 5 which is actually although it is a family book although the family books were collected first book 5 represented a new trend which continued into the non family books which came later and therefore it is closer to the non family books 1 8 and 8 to 10 and uh, i quote professor proferis himself who has analyzed this in great detail in two three articles i have quoted both uh, given the references of both these articles here and his quotations he points out that book 5 although it is a family book is closer to the non family books 1 and 8 and not to the other family books 2 to 4 and 6 to 7 and he says that this is interesting he in fact notices the difference he points it out and he emphasizes the difference that book 5 is to be classified with the non family books although it is a family book in classified with them in respect of dating chronology now we get a two fold division of the text based on the studies of 200 years of indological scholars now this is the old rigveda books 2 3 4 6 7 and the new rigveda books 5 1 8 9 10 
which are extremely distinct in time frame and vocabulary. Um, I will add that some scholars have also tried to find other criterion, you know, like um, they, they say, for example, a grammatic form of the verb, it can end in asas or us. So they point out, you know, this word asas is used four times in book one, 12 times in book two, three times in book four. And they go give, carry out a, this thing of how many times it is used in each book. And then they try to decide that which of the two forms is older and therefore which book is older. Now, this is very ridiculous because if that word is found everywhere, the composers of the hymns did not sit down and decide, you know, we will use this pro word or this form so many times. They just use the language and it is before us. So how many times they use it in the book is not important. Whereas if you see my classification, you will see that it is a classification based on the Indological, the philological division of the Rigveda by the Indologists into old Rigveda and new Rigveda. They do not use these words old Rigveda and new Rigveda. I am using them now because although they arrived at this division, they did not pursue it to its conclusion because they were wearing the blinkers of the Aryan invasion theory. Now, uh, this, uh, you will see that wherever I show the difference between the old Rigveda and the new Rigveda, it is not a difference between, you know, eight hymns here and 12 hymns there or 500 hymns there and 700 hymns here. It is a complete distinction between zero in the old Rigveda, zero and a huge number of things in the new Rigveda, which means that it is not just by chance that the words are not there. See, there are five books in the old Rigveda. All five of them do not use so many words at all. Whereas five new books, they use those words many times. And further, you know, the, all the scholars, right from Oldenburg down, they decided that although two, three, four, six, seven were old books, there were certain hymns in them which were modified or redacted later. That is, they were, did not become fixed in form. They kept on changing according to the language. It is like, you know, if you read a copy of the Ramayana written 2000 years ago in Sanskrit, then you read it written, say, in Braj Bhasha 300 years ago. You read it written in modern Hindi. You will see all different words. But what they're referring to is to the incident, to certain incidents which are supposed to have taken place so many at a particular fixed time. Not the time at which the uh, this analysis, is, uh, the translation or the retailing is taking place, but at the time when the historical event took place. So similarly, what you see in the redacted hymns is old hymns, which have been become linguistically modified as per the language of the new Rigveda, because either they were recited as ballads, like you know Kirtan. If a Kirtan is there in Maharashtra, for example, the Kirtankar is telling a story of some Puranic story. And then he adds modern, he refers to Indira Gandhi and uh, Rahul Gandhi possibly now or whatever. So it becomes, you know, they bring in contemporary references just to uh, get in, uh, so to say, in line with the uh, thinking of the listeners. So these redacted hymns are old hymns which were recited often or for various other reasons, they were modified linguistically. So they are between the old hymns and the new hymns. So here you can see how many. There are 280 hymns in the old Rigveda, books 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, which are old hymns. There are 62 hymns 
which have been classified all the way from Oldenburg to Witzel. Which, in fact, I got that list of uh, this thing not from Oldenburg's book itself, but from where Witzel has noted them down based on Oldenburg's works. And then you have the New Rig Veda, which has 660 hymns. Now you see, in my article, the chronological gulf between the old Rig Veda and the new Rig Veda, I have shown how these two almost separate books were composed at different periods of time. The old Rig Veda was composed first. It has a completely different language. And then was the new Rig Veda after a few centuries when language had developed in a different way. Then the new Rig Veda was composed. And it has a completely massive new different vocabulary. And that vocabulary you find in the old books only in the redacted hymns. Because those hymns were linguistically updated. Now, how many times you see out of 280 hymns, uh, in this article, I have analyzed a mass of words, including many, many very important Rigvedic words, which are even including, for example, we know the Atharva Veda and the Yajur Veda. Now, Yajus and Atharva are words which only appear from the middle books onwards. So you see, in that article, I have analyzed the Rigvedic vocabulary completely. It's very tedious, but it's very complete. Now, what you see is that out of 280 hymns, not one hymn contains one of these words also. In the 62 hymns, in the redacted hymns, you find 51 hymns out of 62 have these words. That is 82.26% of the hymns. And in the new Rig Veda, 660 hymns out of 686 have these words. And how many words are there? 3,100 times these words occur in these. In 660 hymns, 3,100 uh, times. And in 280 hymns in the old Rig Veda, zero. It's absolutely absent. Now, uh, this is the complete gulf between the old and the new Rig Veda. Now, it is not only in the language that the new Rig Veda has a new language. Even the geography of the two Rig Vedas is completely different. For example, what are the geographical indications in the Rig Veda? You have names of animals, you know, elephant, peacock, chital, camel. Now, some of these are Western animals like camel, sheep and goats. They are found in Kashmir, Afghanistan and the northern mountainous regions. Of course, they are also found in the eastern Himalayas and the Nilgiris. But those were not part of the Rigvedic area. But they were not part of parts of Haryana also. Uh, I mean, in Haryana, these animals were not found. They were found only in the beyond the Indus at that time. So you these are western animals and eastern animals like elephant, a peacock, the chital and uh, the wild buffalo and the Indian bison gaur. These are five, for example, which are found in the Indian uh, mainland. They are not found in Afghanistan. Now, if you see the uh, animals, lakes, place names and mountains of the east are found throughout the Rig Veda in all the mandalas. But those of the west are found only in the new Rig Veda. And even here, they're not found in the family book five, which is remember the oldest of the new books and the last of the family books. So in the old books, you find zero hymns and zero verses, which refer to these animals, lakes, place names and mountains of the uh, West of the West. I'm talking now in the redacted hymns. Also, you don't find any because what happens is see the redacted hymns are redacted in language. They're not redacted in geographical context. That is if Sudas was fighting in Punjab, 
in a redacted him they don't place him in afghanistan or bihar they will still place him in the punjab when we are discussing the ramayana in today's language we will still place rama in ayodhya we will not suddenly put him in uh, nagpur or uh, uh, chennai so you see the geography was not changed although the language was changed which is why although the redacted hymns have new words they do not have new geographical context they only have the old ones so now what you notice is that the old hymns as well as the redacted hymns in the old books don't have a single western ref an, uh, re reference geographical reference of animals lakes place names and mountains of the west but the new rigveda has 44 hymns which refer to them in 52 verses and all the four non family books see 1 8 9 10 they refer to them again as i said the difference between zero and many zero and a large mass of references this is i spoke of the animals lakes place names and mountains but now the most important thing which people usually refer to is the rivers now the rivers of the east saraswati and east are also found throughout the rigveda but the rivers of the west the indus and west of it now what do i mean by west by east i mean the saraswati and rivers to its east like ganga jamuna etc by west i mean the indus and rivers to its west which come from afghanistan and by central i mean the uh, rivers between the indus and the saraswati that is the rivers of the punjab they are the central rivers now the rivers of the east are found throughout the rigveda the ganga yamuna are referred to in the old books as well as the new books and the saraswati of course is referred throughout but the rivers of the west indus and west appear only in the new rigveda and in one book book 4 of the old rigveda it uh, they appear but it shows a historical trail showing the expanding movement of the vedic people from east to west the vedic bharatas or purus bharata purus now i have put it on a graph see the oldest book is book 6 the book of bharadwaja which was at the time of devodasa and it refers to all the earlier periods because it refers to all the ancestors of devodasa also now second books second and third books are 3 and 7 the books of vishwamitra and vasishta respectively and they pertain to the period of sudas who was a descendant not a son or grandson but a far, far, further descendant of devodasa now in this and finally book 4 is at the time of sahadeva and somaka who are the descendants again of sudas so many generations separate these books that is 3 and 7 may be the core of the books 3 and 7 are at the same period of sudas but book 4 comes much later and then come book come book uh, books 5 1 8 9 and 10 the new books now look at this when you look at this graph you will realize that book 6 refers only to the saraswati to the eastern tributaries of the saraswati like haryupya and yavyavati and to the yam ganga and then you see the progression each subsequent book you see them moving you can see this on this graph very graphically that they are moving from east to west and is it just because the rivers are named from east to west that we uh, derive this movement no because it is part of a historical narrative because sudas is described in book 3 as performing a yagna in haryana to the east of the saraswati after which he lets loose the horse and starts conquering north south east and west 
Now, before that, he moves westwards under the priesthood of Vishwamitra and crosses the first two rivers of the Punjab, the easternmost two rivers, Satlej and Bias, that is Shutudri and Vipash. And because the Rigveda tells that he is crossing it for the first time in search of Soma, which was growing to the west. And because the rivers are so difficult to cross, the reference is that Vishwamitra says some hymns which calm the rivers so that Sudhas and his army can cross over. So here it is clearly a movement from this area defined in book 6. It is a movement of the Bharatapurus westwards across the first two rivers of the Punjab. Now the next book under Vasishta, Vishwamitra actually goes further. He goes right up to the third river, the Ravi or the Parushni. And he fights a big battle there with 10 of the local tribes who are united against one king, Kavasha, one Anu king. So it is the Bharatapu who is fighting against the Anus of that Punjab area of the Parushni river. And the enemies of Sudasa called the people of the Asikni. That is the river further west, which means that they are fighting from the direction of the Asikni and Sudas, as we already know, is moving from the east. And finally, in the time of his descendants, Sahadev and Somaka, we find that they have crossed. In fact, they have shifted that particular book. The geography of the entire book has moved westwards. It is the only book which does not refer to the Saraswati, although it refers to the eastern animals and uh, place names and all that. So it is not a western book, but it does not refer to the rivers of the east because all the activity in this book takes place in the west. So it refers to the Vipash, the Parushni, the Indus and to certain rivers west of the Indus for the first time. And then after that, once they have spread out till there, the Rigveda has uh, now the area of the Rigveda covers the whole area from Western UP to Afghanistan. And so in the new Rigveda, you find the rivers. As I said, you also find the animals, place names, lake name, lake uh, names and others of the West. But you also find the rivers of the West in all the five new books, including book five. Although book five does not have the animal names and place names, but it has the rivers because it is in between the old books and the new books. So the geography of the two Rigvedas is as distinct as the language. Now, what is the, there is a big gulf between the two Rigvedas. You cannot just say Rigveda and expect that you have answered some question because the old Rigveda and the new Rigveda, the change in language is so much that it could not have taken place in a day. After the old Rigveda was completed, a few centuries must have passed during which a massive new vocabulary took place and the uh, Vedic people had, you know, so, uh, sort of uh, stretched far westwards in the west. So there, obviously there was a gap of a few centuries between the completion of the old Rigveda and the commencement of the new Rigveda. So it is not, you know, that all the mandalas follow one after the other in quick succession. There is a gap between the old and the new Rigvedas during which all these developments took place. Now the old Rigveda thus stands in a unique position in a chronologically early and geographically isolated position vis-a-vis -vis the new Rigveda as well as the whole of subsequent Vedic and Sanskrit literature. You know, whole of uh, 
the new language of the rigveda of the new rigveda it is found in all later books including the other veda samhitas the brahmanas the arnakas the upanishads the sutras and classical sanskrit literature it is only in the old rigveda the old hymns of the uh, four five old books that you don't find these words so this old rigveda stands in a unique position isolated from the whole of the rest of vedic and sanskrit literature it represents a very ancestral uh, historical period now the rigveda has been preserved like a like a tape recording now how is it as i said if you keep on retelling the ramayana you will be adding new new words and concepts to it but why is it the old rigveda has not got a single word because it was considered so sacred that no changes took place in it and whatever changes took place in the redacted hymns are known and accepted by all the scholars so in all my books i have given quotations by witzel i have not given here because there are too many anyone can see in my books and even in my articles he repeatedly tells us in every article that that rigveda is been preserved like a tape recording or like photographs or like better than inscriptions he tells us they are better than inscriptions because they even tell us the tone in which the words were recited or spoken even the tones are recorded in the rigveda and he says he tells us that um, uh, he tells us it is better preserved than the chinese hebrew greek and latin books now he is the one saying it if i had said it it would have been a chauvinistic hindu saying it but michael witzel actually compares it to the chinese hebrew greek and latin books and he says that it is more like a, a inscription than those books it is exactly like a tape recording is what he says now but there is no carbon dateable copy of the rigveda you know like you have written inscriptions in west asia egypt syria iraq everywhere which can be carbon dated and can be read we have seals in the indus valley in harappa which but uh, contain a language but they have not been deciphered so we cannot read them and they are they go back beyond 2500 bc but they are not readable the oldest carbon updatable and decipherable records in india are the ashoka pillars in the 3rd century bc which is why indian scholars have always been handicapped in contesting the chronological claims of the shall we say uh, the uh, anti or let us say the ait side the aryan invasion theory side which claims that you know these people came in 1500 bc and whatever dates they give before 3rd century bc neither can they prove it with re re written records nor can be contested with written records because there are none in india but in the records of west asia and egypt we have carbon dateable records pertaining to the mitanni kingdom which dominated the major part of syria iraq from 1500 bc this kingdom was so important you can check it out on wikipedia or in any encyclopedia or in any other records it was so important it occupied the major part of syria and iraq and it was the main rival of egypt on the one hand and uh, of egypt which was a major power and uh, it was so important it is recorded from 1500 bc not only in their own mitanni records but in egyptian records as well and these mitanni people go back even earlier in 1750 bc you see the kassites who also use some uh, sanskrit words 
which are there in mitanni now the mitanni people spoke a non indo european language hurrian it is not an aryan language or indo european language it is a west asian language but the ruling clan the kings the royal dynasty which ruled the mitanni they spoke a, a language which is indo aryan or related to vedic sanskrit and they preserved the vestiges of the ancestral vedic heritage in the form of personal names and certain other words what are those words some vedic gods are mentioned in treaties then indo aryan numerals are used there is a word for bead it is the only important word money and words pertaining to horses and horse racing and all these are indo aryan words now here is what the uh, western scholars witzel and mallory for example say they say the mitanni once lived close to an early indo aryan group and that's why the mitanni people have borrowed all these words from indo aryan and these words are recorded from at least 1750 bc in kassite records and from 1500 bc in mitanni records and they are described by witzel as remnants of indo aryan in mitanni and that influence was not on the mitanni but on a pre mitanni population so you see they agree that whatever records are there for the mitanni the sanskrit influence came long before that only the remnants are found in mitanni now what is mallory says is the same thing he says that although we can only date the sanskrit words in the mitanni texts on the dateable documents which are from 1500 bc and the few references in 1750 bc but he says the indic elements are no more than the residue of a dead language in hurrian now even today people will debate whether sanskrit is a dead language in india or not but at that time sanskrit was already a dead language for the mitanni people only the indic it is found as a residue of a dead language and he says that the mixture with the indo aryan which took place must have taken place centuries earlier so you see it is not we who are saying it it is these scholars witzel and mallory who are saying that the mitanni indo aryan influence on mitanni was long before 1750 bc in west asia now if the aryans entered india by only 1500 bc and composed the rigveda from 1500 to 1200 bc how could people with vedic ancestry land up in west asia long before 1500 bc so what is the answer because you see before that no one knew about the mitanni they knew the name they didn't know the language but in the last century in the beginning of the last century they deciphered the documents and they found that it was an indo aryan language so they were stunned how is it vedic words are found there before the vedic people are even supposed to have entered india so then they made up this uh, concocted one more version of the ait according to which the indo iranians came from south russia to central asia jointly after that the indo aryans and the iranians split the indo aryans came into india the iranians went into afghanistan and one group of indo aryans went even further west they went into syria and iraq where they composed where they formed the mitanni uh, rulers so what this means is that whatever common elements you find in the rigveda and the mitanni it is pre rigvedic because you know the rigveda was composed after the uh, indo aryans entered india 
and they had already separated from the mitanni in central asia itself so if there is anything common it is pre rigvedic now is that a fact the next yeah if this story is true the common culture is pre vedic then this common culture should be found in full in the old rigveda not in the new rigveda or it can be found in the new rigveda but it should be found more in the old rigveda before some of the words die out of use but on the contrary this common culture is found in the avesta iranian avesta in the mitanni records and in the new rigveda and because of that in subsequent vedic and classical sanskrit but it is completely missing in the old rigveda so this common culture cannot be pre rigvedic because it is not there in the old rigveda itself it is a new culture developed during the period of composition of the new rigveda and the avesta as well as the ancestors of the mitanni must have migrated from the rigvedic area during the composition of the new rigveda so it's very clear now i'll uh, usually i just say this in my talks i cannot give all the details i always say go to my books and see the actual verse in verses and numbers and all now these name types and the word money bead this is the only important word remember bead industry is very important in the harappan sites it is one of the main harappan industries now this word money bead is found in the rigveda and the rigveda and the mitanni records now it is found as follows in the rigveda in books 5 1 8 9 and 10 in 21 13 24 9 and 41 hymns it is not found in books 2 3 4 6 and 7 it is found only in the new rigveda in the names of composers i am telling you like you know names with atithi ending in atithi like deva atithi brahma atithi you find names of that kind names ending in uh, uh, ratha or names ending in ashwa you find them only in these five new books and you find them in the mitanni this is in the composer names that is you know if you go to the rigveda there are 1028 hymns before each hymn they give the name of the composer so it is in those composer names that you find these words in the new rigveda now next this is in the composer names but if you actually go to those hymns themselves where do, uh, next next slide yeah now you find these common with vedic mitanni name types and words within the hymns again only in books 5 1 8 9 and 10 see how many times you find them i have given all the so anyone can check it up as i said when i give something i always give the data you can check it up and prove me wrong you can say show that i'm lying that i'm giving false data but you can't because that there it is the data is there it i'm giving the data what it is now just see how many times it is found in books 5 1 8 9 and 10 these names of this type people with these names in the new rigveda and there are many common names also one of them in fact indrota is found in the new rigveda it is found in the mitanni and it is not found anywhere else even in the later text that name had died out but it is there in the new rigveda and in the mitanni people now next now these name types and the word money are found only in the new rigveda they are completely missing in the old rigveda so if the mitanni people are what is the logical conclusion if the mitanni people are already in west asia in 1750 bc already having 
ancestral culture the residue or remnants of an ancestral culture then they must have left their original area haryana to afghanistan as recorded in the rigveda at least a few centuries earlier and the name types and word money that they took with them represent the culture of the new rigveda must be even older before they went that culture had already developed after a gap of a few centuries after the old rigveda and so that new rigveda has started developing before 2000 bc if the culture of the new rigveda goes back to long before 2000 bc and this is preceded by the lull or gap of a few centuries between the completion of the old rigveda and the commencement of the new rigveda then the culture of the old rigveda must go back to long before 2500 bc and in this period long before 2500 bc what do we find in the old rigveda which as we know has been recorded like a tape recording what do we find we find the rigvedic indo aryans were settled in haryana and they had not yet commenced their expansion westwards beyond the indus the rivers of the area had purely indo aryan names with no reference at all to any earlier non indo aryan names that is they only have indo aryan names now i don't know if you are aware how many rivers in america have red indian names or uh, native american names because uh, uh, there are always people who will go into you know you should not use the word red indian and things like that so and how many rivers in europe have pre indo european names how many rivers in armenia have pre indo european names so you see in the old rigveda which goes back before 2500 bc all the rivers have purely indo aryan names and nowhere in the rigveda is there any reference to anyone who can be described as pre indo european before these rigvedic people came not a single non indo european name and there is a long tradition of reverence for this area now this carbon dateable uh, dated evidence for the mitanni it places the old rigveda in haryana in a purely indo aryan environment long before 2500 bc now any scientist who claims to be a scientist who refuses to examine and either accept or disprove you accept it if you find it right or disprove it if it is wrong but examine it but they don't without examining this they if they produce any kind of evidence to show that the indo aryan languages entered india only after 200 bc from central asia then that scientist is definitely in my view a fraud and a shyster this as we will see now applies to all those fraudulent geneticists like david rike and his colleagues who claim that they have genetic evidence showing that the indo europeans entered india only after 2000 bc now uh, should i say about that word or will you be asking me after no sir so yeah. let us talk about that so i do want to so so for the record look uh, i i want to say this to each and every person who is going to be viewing this right now or later on or yeah. listening to the audio version so while we were having our email exchange i had told shrikant sir ki sir aap why are you using the word fraudulent uh, do you think it is fair and uh, uh, shrikant sir had said you know what 
it's very good that you have raised this question you raised it during the podcast so there we are sir can you explain why you have word use the word fraudulent and for the record i had disagreed with shrikant sir and i still stand with my disagreement but it is his presentation he has every right to present it the way he does but uh, uh, you can explain that and then sir you can continue with the presentation yeah yeah now i am uh, i wanted to use that word because you know i'm fed up the for opposition people even when they are telling lies even they are pro- when they are propagating lies and uh, falsehoods they can call us by any name they want like you know recent, the, there are so many words you object my nieces object if i ever happen to use the word negro they say no no that word is now bad you should not use the n word now but you see in the west when the leftists go there and all those people including right bill gates right from bill gates down they hold posters condemning brahmins and brahmanism no is that right can you condemn uh, 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 use that kind of racist or uh, name for uh, any indian community while acting so hyper sensitive about use of words well, so that is the kind of you know uh, dialogue which is being going on that is the kind of uh, thing which has been put before us that they can insult us they can say anything they want and we have to guard our words we must not use words even if they are true i said no i have decided no i will up till now i was trying to not use the word um, but i decided that you have to call a spade a spade and what they are doing is a fraud see there are many people who condemn max miller and others and they say they were uh, uh, biased people they had a agenda and all i don't agree with them i think that those people you know they they may or may not have had an agenda i can also be accused of having a hindutva agenda so what agenda you have is not the point the point is what is the data and evidence before you how do you look at it how do you analyze it now those people had certain data and evidence before it they gave their views those views may have been wrong but then who corrected them who presented what i have presented all this evidence who presented it before them so how do you expect that they should have uh, found out all these things which i have pointed out now they didn't so they were being very honest there is nothing fraudulent about their work even if they are wrong even if they are wrong they were wrong because people can be wrong but what you see today as i gave the example of the babri masjid or the ghagar akra or many other things now uh, kushal knows i am in no way a supporter of the bjp in no way but yet recently something has happened the certain western people they have taken out a report saying that the deaths in india under covid you know uh, the usual usual suspects like arvin subramanian and all they say that more than 10 times uh, it's not just whatever the figure is they say the actual figure of deaths in covid is more than 10 times or more than that also than what has been reported no how how you, you see once i remember last year shekhar uh, gupta who is no friend of the uh, either of hindus or bjp i think now he said that those who say that uh, figures are being falsified in india they don't realize that india is not a closed place like china where you can hide figures someone or the other will find out and the figures will come out so here we have the figures out no one is contesting and these people they may be wrong i'm not saying they may be wrong but if they are wrong it must be happening all over the world in every single country of the world there must be undercounting of deaths and uh, reporting of wrong figures but these people in the west certain indians anti indian indians residing in the west they write these articles and do these so called studies where they only target india 
so you see this is and every single indian newspaper has reported this report saying that deaths have taken and somehow as if you know the government is responsible for it which government is responsible in usa we have it worse than in india the situation so are you going to blame uh, biden or you are going to blame trump or whom are you going to blame for that so you see the that uh, false giving false propaganda and propagating frauds has become a way of life for these academicians for these media people so i think i don't want to mince my words and people who are going to abuse me are going to abuse me anyway you know i have seen so many people have told me that people say you use a lot of ad hominem in your writings i don't know where i use ad hominem you look at the definition of ad hominem it means where you attack a person rather than the position that he has taken everywhere i give detailed data facts evidence numbers figures and then if i use a word there those people refuse to look at the data they see that word and they say i'm using ad hominem you know the first blog i put up on my blog spot was in criticism of manasa tarangini a writer in the west who has a huge fan following among extremely orthodox racist casteist brahmins i'm saying this straight here and uh, he wrote an article in which he called a list of people which includes not only myself ns rajaram david frawley conrad els bb lal sr rao and he said that all of us he practically called us idiots now that is not adamanim without examining our words he calls us idiots and because i wrote a reply to him you know i received a phone calls from people who were up till now had been nice to me and they said you should not have said this about uh, this thing you are using ad hominem that really and what is idiot is that praise and i in my reply to him i pointed out i took sentence by sentence from his article and i showed how he was giving false thing you can check it on my blog spot and yet i am accused of giving uh, using uh, indulging in ad hominem well if what i am doing is indulging in ad hominem i am proud of it and i am not going to stop using it because anyone whoever wants to criticize me will be doing it anyway i am not going to mince my words or uh, curve my tongue or uh, pen for that so because if i what i say is wrong if i say it without giving data and facts and if i constantly use it wrongly you can accuse me like in my uh, let me give this incident in my recent book genetics and aryan debate I twice referred to one of these Manas Manasatanangini books as racist castes. Now, after that book was published, only a hundred copies were published. Rajiv Malhotra phoned me and he said, "You should not have used that word. It's not." And I realized, see, in the uh, in the flow of writing, you know, you use words and then afterwards you don't realize. So I realized that in one of those places, that word was correctly used because I was describing what they are doing. In another of the references. i just referred to that person and i added the phrase racist castes before his name which could be ad hominem and i was quite ashamed of it i immediately contacted my publisher i said you change that phrase so if you have a copy of that book you just check that reference to kalave venkat and you see in if that in the beginning of the book if that reference says racist castes then you have one of my first 100 copies if it says something else then you have my later copies so if i wrongly use it i will accept it but just criticizing and people who are constantly applying all kinds of labels to us i don't consider it ad hominem and if anyone does i am not apologetic about it now uh, we'll go on with this now 
I give the this thing about the Mitanni and the Rigveda. Now you know Mitanni and Rigveda are both Indo-Aryan, but you have some some other group, the Iranians, who are supposed to have split from the Indo-Aryans first. So for good measure, let us examine the same common late name types and words in the New Rigveda and in the Avesta. We compare the Rigveda, New Rigveda and the Mitanni. Now the Mitanni Indo-Aryan language, as I said, was Indo-Aryan, but this is Iranian. Now, this includes this common data between the Rigveda and the Avesta includes the name types already common to the Rigveda and the Mitanni. I did not give them before. I'm giving them now. They are Ashwa, Ratha, Sena, Bandhu, Vasu, Rita, Priya, Brihat, Sapta, Abhi, Uru, Chitra, Kshatra, Yama, Yami, and the word Mani. But in addition to this, because the Avesta is a big book, unlike the Mitanni records, which are sketchy, you also have the following names, name types, and words. See, there's a big list of names, name types, and words in addition to the ones used by the Mitanni. Now, these are also found only in the new Rigveda and in the redacted hymns, but are completely absent in the old Rigveda. Now, see where they are found. Next. I mean, you can uh, go through it later and see the actual words if you want. As I said, anyone can check. They can go to the original sources and check this. Now, in the composer names, the Avesta New Rigveda, you find in the redacted hymns, only one hymn, three verses, 3.36.16. It is a redacted hymn. The old hymns don't have any name, composer name. In the New Rigveda, you find 39, 61, 52, 61, and 95 hymns, where the composers have names of the common type. And the old books, 6, 3, uh, uh, 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, don't have anything except in one re redacted hymn. Now, that was in the composer names. Now, those same names are found within the hymns. The composer names are given before the hymn, but within the hymns, the names which occur, you see, uh, before that, the earlier one, earlier, earlier uh, this thing also, it is found in a few redacted hymns. See, in redacted hymns, you find, you don't find in the old hymns. In redacted hymns, you find it in 3, 2, 5, 3, and 2 words. Because, you know, these uh, words uh, were re redacted later. Now, in the case of geography, I told you that when they are redacting, they did not change geographical names. Just like when we are telling the Ramayana story, we don't place, place Rama in Mumbai or Chennai. We place him in Ayodhya. So, geography does not change. But... If you read the Ramayana and Mahabharata, you will see many people are named there who are not there at the time of the Ramayana and Mahabharata. But they were there at the time when the book was written. So you find uh, that uh, they are uh, there in the books, which are written at a later period. So these redacted hymns were modified in the new Rigvedic period. So you find some names there, though you don't find geographical words. Next. And in the new Rigveda, see how many times. You find it in 23 hymns, 42 verses, 47 words in book 5. Then 56 hymns, 101 verses, 119 words in book 1. Next, in book 8, you find it in 60 hymns, 140 verses and 168 words. In book 9, you find 18 hymns, 23 verses, 23 words. And in book 10, you find it in 81 hymns, 150 verses, 165 words. Next, so to summarize this full thing, Avesta Rigveda data, you find old Rigveda books, zero hymns and zero verses out of 280 hymns. 
in the new redacted hymns you find only one hymn and three verses have the composer name and 15 hymns and 21 verses 22 words have it within the hymns and in the new rigveda 308 hymns 3389 verses have these new names in the composer names and 238 hymns 456 verses have 522 words within the hymns it's a complete as i said distinction between zero and a huge number in hundreds of thousands now another aspect is that the rigveda has certain hymns which are called diametric hymns diametric meters sorry you know the gayatri we have heard of gayatri mantra actually it is a meter that is something which has three verses three lines each verse has three lines of eight syllables each eight syllables each that is known as gayatri second if it has a four lines of eight syllables each that is known as um anushtub and that uh, anushtub is found later in the it is also known as the stotra this thing if you go through the ramayana or bhagavad gita you will see every verse has four lines of eight syllables each you just go through it and see now the but these are found throughout the rigveda because they were very old meters you will find them in other uh, indo european cultures of europe but there are newer diametric meters that is pankti which has five lines of eight syllables mahapankti which has six lines of eight syllables and diameter shakvari which has seven lines of eight syllables and these are common to the avesta and the rigveda in fact in the avesta these are found right from the oldest hymns of the avesta that is the hymns composed by zarathustra himself which is in a slightly different language to the rest of the avesta it is known as the gathaic language and even that gathaic language the gathas that part of the avesta that also uses these meters but where do you find them in the rigveda you find them in, in the you don't find them in the old hymns at all you find them in one hymn and one verse in the redacted hymns that is the last verse of book 6 and that last hymn book 6.75 is referred to by vidgel many times as a notoriously late hymn so that notoriously late hymn has this meter in its last verse and in the rigveda you find 50 hymns and 255 verses in books 5 book 5 you have 49 verses book 1 you have 60 verses book 8 you have 86 verses book 9 you have 19 verses and book 10 you have 41 verses which use these new meters again you see this again shows that the rigvedic people not just the mitanni but even the ancestors of the avestan iranians they left india in the period of the new rigveda because their culture is definitely post old rigveda now what is the timeline established by this evidence let us be very logically look at it see the rigveda is divided into two distinct parts old rigveda and new rigveda separated from each other by many centuries in the old rigvedic period long before 2500 bc the vedic people were located in haryana and westernmost up by the new rigvedic period 2500 bc onwards they had expanded westwards up to afghanistan the ancestors of the iranians and the proto mitanni migrated from india from that north new rigvedic area haryana to afghanistan between 2500 and 2000 bc 
and the mitanni made their presence felt in west asia by 1750 bc and established the mitanni kingdom in syria around 1500 bc this is a clear timeline established by the philological uh, analysis of the rigveda and the carbon dated evidence of the mitanni records the philological evidence not only of the rigveda but of the avesta also as i have pointed out now what are the sciences behind this timeline there as i said philology and textual exegesis or analysis established by a long line of over two centuries of indologists it shows that the rigveda is divided into two parts as i said that the common elements are found in the new rigveda and uh, the avesta and mitanni and they are completely missing in the old rigveda so the science of carbon dating places the mitanni people in west asia by at least 1715 bc 50 bc and well before that so this dates the new rigveda as i showed well before 2000 bc and the old rigveda in haryana long before 2500 bc now i again repeat these are the two sciences if anyone has the guts he should examine this full mass of evidence and prove me wrong i am not speaking from a pulpit i have given the even in this a uh, talk i have given it in this uh, uh, powerpoint presentation so no one needs to buy my books or even read my articles on uh, internet they can just see this particular uh, powerpoint which i'll be putting on my blog also and they can see uh, check it if they think i'm given wrong something wrong next now what is the what are the implications of this timeline for any genetic evidence now we come to genetic evidence you know all these geneticists admit please note they admit that step dna entered india only after 2000 bc in fact tony joseph in his book where he summarizes the right report he repeatedly tells us that it is impossible that the indo european languages could have come into india before 2000 bc because he claims the genetic evidence shows that the step dna is found in india only after 2000 bc so they could not have brought these languages before 2000 bc and this book as i says shows no memories uh, of any non indo european languages in the area and all the rivers already have indo aryan name by 2500 bc well before 2000 bc well before that step dna entered india therefore any scientist claiming that immigrants after 2000 bc brought indo european languages into india from the steppes without dealing with the scientific evidence of philology textual evidence and carbon dated records are committing a deliberate fraud you see this book was written by of mine was written in 2008 12 years have passed after this and many genetic uh, reports have come after that now these genetic people all these genetic reports agree that the rigveda is the oldest record and when they dare they actually quote the rigveda or cite the rigveda as proving their case then why do they not examine this evidence and prove it wrong now without completely stonewalling this evidence pretending they don't know it exists and they say that they have some proof genetic proof that immigrants after 2000 bc brought it those languages from the steppes then they are committing a deliberate fraud and if we hesitate to call it by that name in my opinion at least it is tantamount to giving them carte blanche to do okay you tell any lies we will accept it we won't abuse you we'll accept it quietly because you all are scientists 
and we are whatever now the how is it fraudulent see the first and most basic point which none of these people seem to notice that genetic evidence can show the movement of people because people go in another area and mix with the then their dna appears in that area if they mix well enough but it does not show the languages spoken by those immigrants remember this we have shakas hunas and so many other people of greek iranian and other origins who came into india and settled down we have the very simplest the parsis for example they are speaking gujarati they don't speak uh, persian though they learn it out of religious fervor but they don't speak they speak gujarati now even the people who came all the muslims who came they destroyed all the temples they converted people they made people wear islamic dress male and females they uh, pushed so many arabic and urdu words into the local languages or i won't say pushed maybe it's a natural process by which these words get uh, adopted into the languages but none of them none of the muslims in india actually speak arabic and persian except those who deliberately learn it in madrasas as an additional language so you see there is no case of any immigrants into india who not only retain the language but impose it on the people even the muslim uh, uh, islamic uh, rulers never managed to impose the foreign languages on india they adopted the indian languages even if they used their many of their own words in it now you see religion also is a thing which goes from one area to another buddhism spread from india to whole of east asia islam spread from arabia to whole of north africa and right up till india and even east into indonesia and malaysia yet they it is the religion that spread not the dna christianity spread all over the world today you find people of african origin and american uh, native american origin who know only english or spanish but their dna not, does not necessarily have step dna in it they should because they also speak indo european languages they should have not only english or whatever dna spanish i don't know if even that is there everywhere but they should have step dna in their blood but they don't so you see languages religion cultural features chess spread out from india all over the world cricket and football spread out from US, uh, england all over the world nowhere did it take genes and dna with them these games they spread became part of the culture of the world now secondly there is so when these people you know automatically show some genetic evidence of dna entering india and then they say that this proves that indo european languages came into india they are clearly they clearly they should be knowing in their minds if they are real scientists that what they are saying is not scientific secondly there is ambiguity in what they mean by aryan sorry that uh, thing is there by aryan dna sometimes they specify r1a1 like for example um, uh, tony joseph calls it the aryan dna it is the genetic marker of the aryans he says and sometimes in others they just call it step dna by which they probably mean a mixture of different uh, elements and all they are very careful to keep the two contexts separate sometimes they talk about r1a1 sometimes they talk about step dna without clarifying what that means so that arguments against one leave the other unscathed very clever way of arguing now we will examine both these contexts first the exact percentage of r1a1 
among the speakers of different language families and then the step dna presented in the rack report now see this why we say fraudulent if you call it an aryan gene there are 12 branches of indo european languages now the hittite and uh, tocharian dna i don't know if they have examined it and uh, found because i don't know if they have examined specimens of specifically hittite speaking or tocharian speaking people because both these branches are uh, extinct you have 10 branches living now see the other nine branches other than indo aryan in iran 3 to 4% the people of iran in the western areas in their dna only 3 to 4% r1a1 is there and it increases towards the east but even there it is less than 20% including in the parsis in india in armenia it is 2 to 9% in greece 11 to 17 in albania 2 to 10 in the italic people spain portugal 2% italy 4 to 5 going up to 11 in the northeast etc romanians alone being in eastern europe have 20% celtic people have 1 to 7% ireland scotland cornwall and wales germanic people germans the pure aryans of uh, the nazis they have 8 to 31% only in some areas it's 31% usually it's between on the lower side and holland has 4% England has one to seven percent, except in Orkney due to Norse mixture. Now, because Norse people had invaded England in historical times, and they were in this Orkney area, so there you find twenty-seven percent. And in fact, you find twenty-seven percent in Scandinavia, in the uh, Germanic-speaking people of Norway, Sweden, and uh, Denmark. Uh, but also among the people of Finland. who are not indo european speaking the finnish language is not an aryan language they also have 27% like the other people of scandinavia so it is not an indo european gene and baltic speakers have 38 to 65% baltic and slavic speakers so two branches only in eastern europe have 38 to 65% next now as i said among indo european speakers high percentage is found only in eastern europe and in the afghanistan central asia area that is baltic and slavic speakers have 38 to 65 iranians have 45 to 50 baluchis have 28 nuristanis 60 tajiks 31 but now see the following non indo european speaking people dravidians you find the medar people have 39 yadavas have 24 koravas have 24 ans 31 karevokal i mean you can see that i won't go on in semitic speakers the ashkenazi levites of israel you know the jews were condemned as non aryans by the aryan germans and they have much more uh, the at least the ashkenazi levites have much more uh, r1a1 than the germans the altaic speakers of uighur you must be knowing that now there is there in the news for chinese persecution and all that they have they speak altaic language turkish sort of language 22% so who are the real aryans you compare these percentages of these non indo european people with the indo european speakers that i gave on the previous page 2% 5% 6% people like greeks so who are the real aryans the iranians greeks romans armenians albanians irish germans or the medar the meite the shammar and the uighur if r1a1 is a marker of genetic uh, aryan genetics now we come to this see this a uh, rake report 
very cleverly soft pedal is the word the r1a1 it i think so far as i have seen they rarely use it they just talk in general terms about step dna without going into specifics about its exact components but i'm not going to argue that i'm not a geneticist let us say they are right what they call step dna maybe it is step dna let us accept that it is step dna by whatever they def however they define it now according to the reik report this earliest step dna is found in india between 1200 bc and 1000 bc this is the earliest date and it is not found all over north india it is found only in the swat area of northernmost pakistan you take a map of pakistan and you see the northernmost area to the west of kashmir the swat area which is just below uh, central asia and a small corridor of afghanistan now that is where you find this step dna so this step dna sample even according to the rec uh, report is not found before 1200 bc in any part of india south of swat not in the harappan areas not in haryana not in punjab sind not in kutch now according to the right uh, now in modern times see they don't have stepped uh, the dna of every period of india now they have the modern times dna of modern indians which they have not given in detail in their report remember this also we just have to take it at their word whatever they say they claim that the step dna is found like other major dna strand among all indians regardless of region caste and language so this is one good thing that the reg report says it says that all of us whatever your race religion caste region all indians have all the same varieties of with minor variation maybe some maybe having you know in the border areas they may be having other things like chinese dna etc but by and large they say all indians have a common combination of dna in different degrees and proportions and another thing they say is that the uh, what we have in common is a special dna found among the onge or andamanese tribes which is found all over india right up till bactria margiana and nowhere outside it so you see akhand bharat is defined by this onge dna which is found only within india nowhere outside it actually this genetic report proves the concept of akhand bharat now what it means is that there is common genetic admixture among all people of india now if this reg report is to be believed their genetic evidence the first evidence for step dna entering india is the northernmost border areas with central asia that is swat only after 1200 bc now if you are a scientist your report has discovered this fact from this will you conclude you should conclude that the what is the natural conclusion any scientist will get from this it is that the step people are entering india sometime around 1200 bc and they have still till 100 bc or so they are mainly found only in the swat area that is the conclusion they should be reaching but these scientists reach some other conclusion not based on their own data but based on what they have decided beforehand it they find that this evidence proves that the people who brought this step dna into india after 1200 bc were the people who composed the rigveda by 1200 bc in an area from afghanistan to western up 
which even in 1200 BC, as per their dates, did not have a single non-Indo-European inhabitant and whose rivers and animals, even in 1200 BC, had purely Indo-Aryan names. Would you call this a scientific conclusion from their genetic data or would you call it a fraud? I would call it a fraud. Further, this is as per their theory, as per the standard dating for the Rigveda, as per their genetic evidence which they are giving in the report, combined with the standard dating given by Hewitzel and others, which totally ignores the Mitanni evidence. Now, if you count the Mitanni evidence, you, you come to another degree of impossibility. What they mean is that this old Rigveda was composed in Haryana sometime after 1200 BC. After a few centuries, they composed the new Rigveda and then people went into West Asia and reached there before 1750 BC, taking with them the vocabulary of the new Rigveda, which was developed well, well after 1200 BC because they entered India in, through the north in 1200 BC. And long after that, they composed the old Rigveda, long after that, the new Rigveda. But they managed to, without the help of magic or of a time machine. Now we have all kinds of magical serials, you know, Harry Potter, um, a Game of Thrones, Merlin. You can go through them. No, no, they didn't use any of this magic. Nor did they use any of the science fiction um, material like uh, time machines. Yet they managed to reach West Asia in 1750 BC. Would you call this conclusion scientific? or a fraud. Of course, that fraud part I've already pointed out, they ignore this evidence. But even after ignoring this evidence, this timeline does not fit in with the 1200 BC date also for the Rigveda. Now, this, as I said, the Mitanni-based timeline alone proves this genetic evidence wrong. But even if you accept their AIT date of 1200 BC for the Rigveda, this genetic evidence does not fit into that also. This alone completely invalidates the Reich report. But that is not all. It's not only in comparison with the chronology of the Rigveda. The genetic data provided by the Reich report is also full of holes regarding the credentials of the Swat step DNA to be the step DNA, which is today found according to their unspecified uh, report. Because they have not given details of the present day percentage in the Indian population. They have only given the Swat details. Now, according to them, this DNA, which forms the present uh, important part of the present day Indian population, it was not brought by the Shakas, Hunas, etc. in the first millennium BC. You see, these scientists are so politically neutral and objective that they find it necessary to intervene and tell us these Hindutvavadis and Indians are wrong. They are liars when they say that whatever step DNA is there in present-day India came from the Shakas, Hunas, etc. in the first millennium BC. It could not have come from them. That is what they are claiming. That is what this report goes out of its way to tell us. This scientific objective report takes a clear political agenda stand by referring to the Shakas, Hunas and telling us that they did not bring this step DNA. Now, we will see some important aspects of the many contradictions in the data and conclusions. Now, firstly, is it 200 BC DNA or first millennium BC DNA? This, as I said, this REC report specifically tells us that after 1500 BC, all step DNA 
had an element of chinese han east asian whatever you call it east asian chinese or han dna about 25% on their chart you know in their chart they give colors to represent all the original dna which they have classified so in their chart the color purple represents the han chinese east asian dna now they say that the step mlba the step dna in present day indians does not contain chinese element the pur purple color so they say that if they came in india in 2000 bc they did not have that chinese element in their this thing so it proves that it is those 2000 bc immigrants who gave us our dna of the present day because after 1500 bc they say that um the people who came after that they had a uh, chinese dna in their blood and that is not found in present day indians so we did not get a step dna from these shakas and kushanas we got it from the 2000 bc step immigrants who are nowhere present in their record their records have them after 1200 bc but still they keep talking about this 2000 bc immigrants now they say that there is a negligible amount not zero also a negligible amount of han ancestry in the present day indians so this proves that they could not have been shakas and hunans now this is what they are claiming so let us see how, how right this is now if because the color purple representing han is not found in modern indians and it should have been found in the shakas hunas i don't know if they have examined shaka actual shaka huna dna and uh, proved this so they they say that it cannot be they who brought our uh, step dna of present day uh, modern indians but then the same logic totally disproves that the step dna found in the swat samples could be step mlba dna as they claim because they claim them step mlba dna is the dna which is found in swat from 1200 bc onwards though they call it 2000 now as per the color coded charts in the rec report the step mlb dna also had different colors in it i am going by the colors in their chart it had the color teal which represents ehg ancestry and color red which contains whg ancestry so the step mlb dna has color teal and red but both these colors are totally absent in the step dna in the swat examples as per their own charts so unless the people who made these charts the scientists suddenly went uh, i know lost them developed amnesia and prepared wrong charts they actually they should have shown this color red and teal in the swat dna but they forgot to do so unless that is the case what it means is that the step dna did not have step dna in the swat samples in 1200 bc also did not have this these elements of the step dna of the step mlba people now next the rec report also tells us that this step dna found in the swat samples after 2000 bc is missing in the bmac area that is what is the bmac area you know to the north of afghanistan the bactria margiana area now as per the whole of the aryan invasion theory story the indo iranians came and settled down in the bactria margiana area before they split and went that separate ways so the bactria margiana area 
cultural complex, which is found there, the archaeological complex, they claim that those are Indo-Iranians, or at least there were Indo-Iranians among them. But this DNA report tells us that they did not have that step DNA. That step DNA apparently crossed those people without mixing with them and stepped directly into the Swat area. So they reject the BMAC as a primary source of ancestry in South Asia. This is what their own report says. Then how, how does it fit in with the Aryan invasion theory? Because the whole Aryan invasion theory of Indo-Iranian linguistics is based on the claim that the BMAC represents the area where the Indo-Iranians developed their common post-Indo-European common Indo-Iranian language and culture. In fact, Witzel and some others have even discovered BMAC substratum of words in Indo-Iranian. A very foolish thing which I have dealt with in many of my articles. But they considered it such a fact that the step intruders stayed in the BMAC before coming to India and Iran. But the Reich report tells us they did not. They passed the uh, areas and came directly into the Swat area. So again, this is totally out of uh, this thing with the Aryan invasion theory, which they claim it proves. It, this Reich report specifically claims it fits, it proves the Aryan invasion theory, but the genetic claims of this are totally opposed or contradict the linguistic claims of the Aryan invasion theory. Next. Now, just when I was preparing this word point, uh, this uh, PowerPoint, I came across this article by Reich himself, just 13 Ju July, you will see, 13 days ago. In uh, Now, in this, what does he tell us in this interview? It is in the Economic Times, the English edition of 13.7. Now, he tell, specifically tells us, though he slyly puts it in some innocuous paragraph, that the kind of step DNA admixture that you find in the Swat samples is totally different from the kind of Swat admixture that you find in modern day Indians. He tells, he admits that their analysis shows that there are two different events, two different step DNA mixture events, the Swat DNA and modern Indian DNA. Because he tells, he admits that there are differences. He tells us these differences could be explained by a non-sex biased migration from Central Asia into South Asia. See how they invent new new stories each time, carrying step ancestry. And it seems in the Swat area, they intermixed by preferential incorporation of females from this step into the Swat area. You know, the Swat males intermixed with the local Swat males intermixed with the step females. And in modern Indians, you find a kind of DNA where the Swat um, the males mix with the Indian females. So it's exactly the opposite. So how do you connect the two and tell us that that is the connection? But at some point later, he tells us, see the, this vague words, followed at some point later by preferential incorporation of females from this population into Swat Valley peoples and preferential incorporation of males from this population into the ancestors of most, most present day South Asian. So two different unrelated events as per his own this thing at vague unspecified points, later points. In a report which claims 2000 BC but only gives data for after 1200 BC. Next. Now there are many other reasons, fundamental reason why the Reich report 
and other genetic reports claiming evidence for the AIT. Let me clarify. There are now many Indians also who are going into genetics to oppose the AIT. I'm not talking about them because whatever they say, I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, it can be fitted into the OIT and it disproves the AIT. However, all these people who claim that their genetic reports prove the AIT, they cannot be scientific because this is the kind of agenda-based reports which they give. And the most telling example is the way in which all the propagandists uh, touting this and similar genetic reports insist on calling the so-called steppe immigrants steppe pastoralists. Now, what is because what is a pastoralist? People who are uh, herding cows and cattle and indulging in dairy, who are a rural agricultural, not agricultural, I mean a dairying sort of pastoral population. Now, the only cattle found in India from pre-Harappan times to modern times, before the introduction of modern day Jersey cows and all that, are Indian Zebu cattle originally domestic, domesticated in the Harappan areas. So the Harappans had cattle. The Vedic people had cattle. And they were the same cattle with both these people in the same areas in the same time frame. They, had, they were uh, having the same cattle. So why this? But the steppe people, uh, immigrants, obviously did not bring any cattle with them. Then why are you calling them steppe pastoralists? Why is that word constantly repeated? It's, it's you know, the way how by the no name alone you can brainwash people into believing something. And why? Because since 200 years, the Aryan invasion theory has been claiming I mean, not 200 years, maybe 110 years after the discovery of the Indus civilization, the Harappan sites, they have been claiming that the Harappan civilization was urban and the Vedic people were pastoral. But Harappan people were pastoral because if you see the Wikipedia where cattle were domesticated, it was domesticated by the Harappans and by the Anatolians, a separate species of cattle. And it is that same cattle which is found domesticated by Harappans which are being used by the Vedic people in the same area in the same time frame. So the, the use of this word step pastoralist is to show that the Vedic pastoralists were different from, because they had come from the steppes. They are different from the urban Harappanites. So you can see how what is this whole thing? Is this honest debate? Is this honest scholarship? Now, this whole de debate, this is my opinion, I'm giving, whole debate is like, you know, insisting that the professor who says 2 plus 2 is 5 is right because he has high degrees and an eminent position in academia. While the boy who says 2 plus 2 is 4 is wrong because he's just an ordinary boy. Or it's like if you know that uh, parable or story of the emperor who had no clothes. All the crowds of elderly people who accepted that the emperor must be wearing the most wonderful clothes in the world. Because the master tailor said so. They were wise. And the boy who said he was not wearing any clothes at all was a fool. So do facts, data and evidence decide the truth? Or do official academic positions and degrees decide it? Ultimately, each individual has to decide whether he, she is wise or is a fool. And even the definitions of what, who is wise and who is a fool, they can decide. And then decide what they are. No one else can do it for them.
All right. So the presentation is over. So, sir, I'll ask you because we've already uh, long into the discussion. So I'll only ask you the audience questions because I'll put them. So, uh, so somebody has asked, can uh, Mr. Can Ji shed some light on the Saraswati uh, Sindhu tribe? Any good books or material on their origin and their migrations? Saraswati tribe? Yeah. Is there anything like the Saraswati tribe? I'm just asking no, well, you the questions. We are, the audience. we are Saraswati Brahmins who claim we came from the Saraswati area, but I wouldn't say we were a Saraswati tribe as such. We were, I don't know what we were, because certainly wherever they went, they intermixed to a large extent with the local population. So we Saraswats of the South have a huge, maybe even a major percentage of Southern admixture rather than the original Saraswati area. Admixture in our genes and DNA. So, okay. So, so another question is: Does the Rigveda tell us about tributaries of the Saraswati, and what about the Sangam of Ganga and Yamuna? Is it mentioned in the Rigveda? No. The, see, the Rigveda is just a book of hymns, and you know, many people say it is not a history book. True, it is not a history book, but we can derive historical clues from the incidental references in it. Now, incident, they did not give any incidental references about thousands of things. So we can only speculate or make up stories or whatever about it. I cannot uh, say that, yes, the Rigveda says this about this. If you ask me a specific question on any particular subject, if it is not in the Rigveda, I cannot give my uh, answer to that. Okay. So somebody has asked, what do you think is the reason for the loss of urbanizations during the era of 1500 BCE to the Mahajanapadas? Why is no uh, written record existing? Could the Mahabharata war and destruction be the reason? No, we don't know. They say, you know, that whatever material on which it was written, like in uh, uh, Harappan, I mean, the Harappan sites, you have seals and stone. You don't have actual written documents. They may have been using them because it is said that the Indian climate quickly destroys all these things, which is why bones, paper, etc. do not remain. That is what people say. I have no particular opinion on this. It is just that they were not there. Maybe there were religious taboos. Maybe whatever there was destroyed by uh, the Islamic invasions, which destroyed. We know how they destroyed the Alexandria Library in Egypt. So it can be anything. I'm not saying it is this or that. We don't know. It's just that it was the Rigveda alone was kept alive like a tape recording. All other subsequent texts were continuously modified like the redacted hymns. So, um, I don't know. Okay. So, someone has asked if the Vedic people were semi-nomadic and if Rigveda started to compose from 2500 BCE, the mature phase, how can Indus people who were very urbanized be Vedic people is the question. Could Indus Valley be multicultural? See, I've answered. There is no... Uh, who said they were semi-nomadic? I have not said it. It is part of the Aryan invasion theory. And they contrasted. In fact, as I said... That is why they use that phrase step, uh, step pastoralists because they have all, since 200 years they have been emphasizing a difference, a fake difference between step, uh, Vedic pastoralists and Har urban Harappanites. But then the cattle were uh, domesticated in the Harappan area in 3000, 4000 or BC earlier when Aryanda not supposed to have domesticated them. So how can you say the Harappans were not pastoral? See, what you have remaining is the Harappan cities. Obviously, people did not exist only in few isolated cities. There must have been villages, 
and uh, this thing and what you see represent the rigveda is the non urban culture though you find references to urban things indirectly but uh, it, it's not actually a description of the harappan cities because remember the rigveda is composed mainly in the haryana and uh, this thing areas where maybe more of this kind of uh, rural culture was predominant okay we don't know so all right yeah. so another question is asked sir if the aryans migrated from central asia then why is the word arya only mentioned in indian and persian texts why don't we find it in other cultures is the no, question i'm just literally asking there. you questions yeah yeah, yeah. see people do claim that uh, the word arya is there in fact i read something which says that uh, the word arya used in is used in tokharian i found it in one article by some western uh, scholar and i searched everywhere for it but i didn't find a corroboration of that anywhere else but then people do say that the word are uh, irish ir you know ireland is called ir e i r e which is just like uh, aryavarta aryana vaijo etc so then there are others who deny that it is connected to that word they say it is something else the point is that it is found mainly in the texts of these two books in reference to themselves because it was a common culture developed by them it was a common culture developed by them in this area after all the others had migrated out so maybe it was a word which developed and became more important as a identity word only between these two people all right so somebody has asked sir this is more like a request i guess i don't know how to put it he has said shrikant ji aryan invasion or migration or out of india theory they are extremely complicated can you send us or guide us to a sequence of findings and theories how they are proved and disproved how they are proved and disproved well see in my uh, i uh, i don't like to tell people read all my books because they are huge books and uh, they, they can that is why i made this one article on my blog you know the whole uh, full out of india theory in short and it is also a big almost 100 pages i think or more but it contains in short all the aspects of the discussion if after going through that you can uh, it's like you know you, some you meet uh, someone from the bhaba atomic research thing and you say can you explain atomic this thing to us you cannot you have to know something about it and then you can ask specific questions so i have given this full out of india case in short and as you know i don't know when but shortly hopefully in a month or more i will be giving a talk in uh, on the linguistic aspects because this is basically only a linguistic question and people claim that linguistics proves the aryan invasion theory so i want to in that talk i will be explaining how all the linguistic evidence disproves the aryan invasion theory and proves the out of india theory all right so somebody has but asked till then i mean you can people can read that blog of mine or and and the the link to the blog spot of shrikant telagiri ji is in the description of the podcast so uh, sir somebody has asked do you what, what do you make of the connections between indians and other civilizations like the mesoamerican or something do you know any connections or there are none what is the evidence do we know anything the meso mesoamerican meso mesoamerican or when i was in college and all and i first started uh, got getting interested in these historical subjects i had read the book hindu america by bhikshu chamanlal and uh, i was very impressed by that and then uh, some of it seems like pnok but it's not there are many other things in it also 
nevertheless i uh, i mean i don't know people have tried to find connections and all i don't know how correct they are and how they are not they don't come in historical this thing they come in you know a more popular kind of research and discussions also sir possibility ye bhi to ho sakti hai na ki a lot of civilizations tend to have parallels with each other because that yeah, is yeah, the exactly. way, nature of people evolving as a species and we exactly. tend to have a lot of commonalities it doesn't necessarily yeah. have to have interaction also the example you know like in tamil what is the word for victory it is vetri what is the word for eight it is et to what is the word for one it is onnu and yet these words are not related just by chance it happens similarly you see in some red indian language some african language you will find one or two words which sound like some indian word or some european language word so chance things always happen okay so sir. so i i kept this question purposely for the last so somebody has said uh what your opinion is it high time that we stop the defense and go on the offense uh and present our case as a positive uh uh effect as in this is our case and this is why this 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 is true and let the other side respond uh, do you agree yeah. it's time for that yes yes it is time now uh, i'll also answer a bit in detail now this article of mine which i have written which i said the full out of india case in short i wrote it because i know people do not have the time or the patience or even the this thing to go through my, all my tedious books and then recall what is there in which page and what it is and all that so in short i as far as possible i wrote that blog article the uh, full out of india case in short the rigveda and uh, whatever that uh, you it is there i say i think you said you have given the link below or you will be giving it now um so no, you, i i i've just kept the link to your blog spot which contains okay. all your blogs yeah yeah so this is the full out of india case in short even if you type talgeri the full out of india case in short on google i'm sure you this uh, article will come up and uh, you can always i think download at least i am able to download a article like that by doing a process of copy paste so you can and uh, putting it on a word document so you can do that also i don't know if you can directly download thing you can oh sorry you can download it from academia.edu where it is there that article so you can download it as a pdf from there also and you can go in detail through it and then you can see what questions you come up with now i did this so that the whole case is presented in one place so that people cannot pretend that they don't know what is there you know what people do they when you are giving one argument they will raise some other objection and when you point out that you have already answered that objection somewhere else they'll come back to this one so they have that tricky uh, way of arguing where they are a tricky and dishonest way of arguing like that so i have presented it all in one article and uh, what is required is that people should take up this article and make it the standard version now if i say when i say this it sounds egoistic i am the one who knows everything i have made this so make this the standard it's not like that you you just anyone who studies the thing will see that i have presented the full case in the only way it could be presented and which is unanswerable when i say this it will sound egotistical but it is true and what happens is that you know all those um that's what i am why is it that this is not taken up and you find all kinds of other impossible and silly silly theories you know being propagated by the hindu opponents of the aryan invasion theory and uh, people who write all kinds of things you know absurd things they have huge fan fan, fan followings 
because people like to hear such things you know they like to hear about the age they like to hear about our text being god uh, given now uh, like people some people even accuse me that uh, you are talking like vijjal or you are talking like then let me say something very clearly now that this whole field of discussion of ancient indian history and all there are two circles discussing it and yes in one of that circles you have all the classical indologists max miller onwards to the present day you have all the western scholars like vijjal hawk etc you have all the leftist writers and historians like uh, irfan habib and romila thapar and uh, you also have us i conrad els uh, all other writers bb lal sr rao dr bb lal dr sr rao all of them all of them are in one circle of discussion many all of us are not saying the same thing many of them are fraudulent writers many of them are genuine writers many of them make some mistakes genuinely but we are one circle of discussion there is a different circle of discussion where people discuss you know sacred books verses and hymns from the sacred books what they say and whether what is divine what is not divine and uh, all that sort of thing you know the rigveda is a purusheya or they discuss dates they tell us see this verse says this and that verse says that from a purely religious point of view let me tell you that is the second circle of discussion it is not in our circle of discussion it is the circle of discussion which they should be having with people like zakir naik or with the uh, missionaries who are bible fund fundamentalistic uh, christians who quote the bible as if it is you know literally they take it extremely literally these people should discuss things with them they are not uh, and yet it is these people's views which are being propagated officially by millions of hindus which is very unfortunate you know then you know they ask they expect me to somehow link that with my like what do you say about the different uh, manuantaras and the different manus and uh, kashyap prajapati who is the ancestor of the devas asuras and hum human beings and animals and everything and uh, then all these you know things which are purely you know religious kind of views i always say you know that religion is perfectly all right in its own place i also i would listen to a story of you know i always give this example of uh, sant nanishwar where he makes the buffalo recite the vedas or he sits on a wall and the wall rises and goes moving through the air to meet a arrogant sadhu called baba ba uh, changdev uh, uh, who is coming on a riding a tiger so even the changdev is so uh overwhelmed that he gets down and falls at the feet of nyaneshwar when we read the, uh, hear this in a kirtan or in a story we are also overwhelmed by that religious feeling that sentimental feeling but let us not take it literally in a historical discussion and say that at that time people could make buffaloes recite the vedas or they could make walls move through there we had the technology or else sant nyaneshwar had that magical powers and expect that to be written in a history book as part of the history of 1000 year ago india you see there are different fields i am not against religious ecstasy even i can feel happy when i read certain things but let us not take it literally into historic historical discussions so people want to know every single puranic incident should be uh, proved right by linking it somehow with my uh, vedic analysis all that is not possible and people you know quote and tell me see see this book this upanishad or this uh, person said that the vedas are apaurusheya so how dare you challenge them i'm sorry uh, you can have that discussion with uh, zakir naik 
which book is divine whether it is the vedas or the quran or the bible you can discuss that with them i will discuss the historical analysis of all these books all right so sir i guess we uh, we've reached the 2 hour mark so any final closing comments or we can uh, wrap today's discussion up sir yeah yeah i don't have any closing comments all right okay guys we'll wrap today's discussion up uh, i know this is a very detailed presentation so this is this is how you can access the presentation i'm going to leave the link to shrikant alagiri ji's blogspot you can go there he's going to upload the entire presentation on the blogspot itself so i know this is a, a lot of material to digest in I'll one go i'll be putting go. it up yeah, tomorrow to i'll be putting it up tomorrow on my blogspot yeah, yeah uh, so sir any time people go and access it yeah. they will always be accessing it so i get that this is a detailed presentation there are a lot of verses there are a lot of references which you will have to go and check counter check if you want to and shrikant sir always encourages people to go and check his references so i leave the details in the description of the podcast you can go that next month as shrikant sir said we will come back with another presentation which will be about the linguistic case of the aryan invasion aryan migration camp and what does it prove or disprove so i will end today's discussion and as always shrikant sir uh, it was a pleasure talking to you and looking forward to the next time's presentation yes is let me say one thing my sister sure. always uh, told me after one of your last programs that uh, you're very uh, uh, thoughtless you never thank kushal for take calling you for the interview and and yes some of these formalities you know at the moment they never strike me so please let me thank you now for this and all other previous and future programs thank you sir so, so- so you don't have to thank me ever i have i have learned a lot from you and uh, i ha- i i keep learning from you and uh, even see a lot of people don't realize they think that you and i have an agreement on everything they don't realize how much we disagree offline how many disagreement ke email we have back and forth even when it came to this presentation you and i had disagreements but i still have always uh, admired one thing about you that whenever we have a disagreement you tell me tum mujhe podcast pe puchna main tumhe wahan answer karunga and you never shy away from from that and i have uh, i have learned a lot from you so this podcast will always be open for you I, i like i said it's been 11 years since i've been following your work and i learn a lot from you so you don't have to thank me for everything ulta i have to thank you i've learned a lot from you so guys we will end today's discussion once again i repeat the presentation and the link to it will be in the description just click the link of shrikant ji's blogspot and you will find the blogspot over there you can access it from there if you have any further questions you can email me at contact@kushalmehra.com also next month we'll come back with another presentation i will wrap today's discussion up if you like the podcast please like the video leave a comment subscribe to the channel you can become a member on youtube or subscribe on patreon you can buy the charvak podcast merch on kadak merch or kushalmehra.com/shop or you can send your donations directly to kushalmehra at icici through upi i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care goodbye